Andrew Talks to Chefs is an independent podcast. For current and past episodes, Andrew's blog, contact information, and more, please visit andrewtalkstochefs.com. To support us, please visit patreon.com slash andrewtalkstochefs. Enjoy the show. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by San Pellegrino Sparkling Natural Mineral Water. For more than 120 years, San Pellegrino has been inspiring people to savor life and tasteful moments around the table. As chefs and restaurants have evolved worldwide, San Pellegrino has always been there to complement the food they serve, the moments they create, and to support them in both good and challenging times. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. Today, on an Andrew Talks to Chefs special conversation, chefs Dan Kluger and Caitlin Giamarillo join us to talk about the genesis and development of Greywind Restaurant in New York City, which opens today, April 12th, 2023. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman. And today we have one of our special conversations. If you haven't caught on to this yet, which is probably unlikely, this is a new recurring feature that we've introduced to allow us to tackle smaller subjects in a non-biographical way in roughly 30-minute conversations. Our guests today are Chefs Dan Kluger and Caitlin Giamarillo. They are the chefs of Grey Wind Restaurant in New York City. More specifically, Caitlin is the executive chef of that project, and the project falls under the umbrella of Dan Kluger's restaurant group in New York City, which, of course, includes what I would say is its flagship restaurant, Loring Place, a restaurant that I'm very fond of. The restaurant opens today in the Hudson Yards complex. And I hasten to add, it is not in the kind of, what would we call it? The kind of elevated kind of Babel-ish shopping center that many people think of as Hudson Yards. It actually has a corner space right on 10th Avenue in the low 30s. And I have to say, I went to friends and family last week and the restaurant is very handsome. The lighting is very uh, romantic and beautiful. And the food that Caitlin and her team are turning out in the kitchen there is great. It was some of the best friends and family food I ever had. Those of you out there who have put on friends and family dinners uh, or attended them, I'm sure you know there's usually issues like the salt level's wrong or the temperature's off or the pacing is off. None of that was the case. It felt like a totally normal uh, dining experience, and I would encourage all of you to check it out. We also, in this interview, talk about the related concepts to Grey Wind. There's going to be the bakery at Grey Wind. There's going to be a cocktail lounge downstairs in the same building. And the bakery at night is going to transform into a chef's tasting counter, which will operate three nights a week with Caitlin and Dan doing a special tasting menu. So there's a lot going on there. Not all of it is functional yet, but the restaurant, as I say, does open today. This show is dropping on April 12th, 2023. I want to wish all the best 
to Dan, Caitlin, and their teams there. I also want to mention, I'm sorry I was gone for a couple of weeks. I had some massive, massive deadlines. Uh, the good news is that I do have a backlog of shows, so you'll probably see a few more in the short term than you're used to. Uh, but for anyone who's written me and expressed concern or annoyance that they hadn't seen a new show in a while, uh, that's really all there was to it. In any event, I'm going to get you right to it. Here is my conversation recorded just a couple of weeks ago with Dan Kluger and Caitlin Giamarillo on the subject of Grey Wind Restaurant. Here you go. Dan and Caitlin, welcome to the show. Dan, you've been on a few times. Caitlin, this is your first time here. As we start the conversation, first of all, why don't we just start with the basics? And Dan, why don't you just tell us what Grey Wind is? Grey Wind is part of this latest project that we are doing in Hudson Yards in a brand new related building. Grey Wind is the restaurant. It is another seasonal American restaurant, but we're having a little more fun than we have in the past. We're going back to some of the farmers we haven't worked with in, in a while and kind of just, you know, stretching different muscles, so to speak. So that's Grey Wind. And then in this uh, in this restaurant, in this concept, we also have a bakery, which is attached to Grey Wind. It's called the Bakery at Grey Wind. And then we have a chef's counter, which is basically Caitlin and I cooking three nights a week, a special tasting menu. And that's going to be really a lot of fun for us and kind of exploring things that um, truthfully I don't think I've done since maybe my tabla days or or uh, maybe the core club days where I really kind of had a higher budget and kind of experiment, experimented more. And then we have Spy Gold, which is a cocktail lounge um, in the cellar level. And then we also operate the food and beverage for the building. And the chef's counter, am I right that the, the bakery kind of turns into that at night? And it's going to be, as the wine people would say, highly allocated. It's like eight seats. Is that accurate? Yep, exactly. And is it one seating a night? Two seatings a night. And again, three nights a week right now. And then the other nights we'll use it for more more dining and it overlooks the kitchen. So you'll kind of be like at a chef's counter for the kitchen as well. So Caitlin, why don't you just tell listeners who haven't heard from you before, just tell us a little bit about yourself. I, I know you cooked a lot in Southern California before New York. Are you from Southern California? Yes. So born and raised in LA. I cooked out there for about five years before I headed over to this side of the country. The most notable restaurant was Tuamek and that was right before I, I took off. I came to New York to cook. I I asked myself if I could cook anywhere in LA, where would that be? And I couldn't honestly answer the question. So I decided it was time for a bigger city. Uh, and that's what New York is. So I've been here ever since. I did three years with Dynex at Balud Sud before finding Chef Dan at Lauren Place. I have to ask, because I love Southern California so much. I was just there two weeks ago. I understand you felt like there wasn't another restaurant there. I'm always perplexed when people come from Southern California to New York. And I'm a, as Dan is, I'm a true New Yorker. I was born in New York. My parents left. I came back the minute I could. I've been here ever since. I love it here. But to me, it's it's just so different. The wet, you know, you don't have to deal with winter there. As a cook and a chef, you know, the, the product there is phenomenal. How, how has New York City been for you and how did you settle on New York City? I mean, I think part of it was I was younger when I made the decision. You know, I was still on the early end of 20s. So I was still gunning and looking for bigger challenges. Um, and because I'm from L.A., I didn't 
necessarily see the advantages of what it has to offer. Um, I was a bit jaded, to be honest. Um, now that I've seen both sides, there's definitely things that I miss. The big thing is New York is, the competition is so fierce that you have to be the best at what you do to even compete, to be even noticed. In LA, there's more space. You're allowed to create. Um, almost anyone can have a restaurant in LA. And it's actually the downfall of a lot of young chefs. Like there are so many people, they were like 23 and they got their own restaurant and it didn't survive a year because they had no idea how to run a business. They could cook, but the reality is the cooking is the easy part when we get into restaurants and running a business. So there's benefits to both. Um, they're very, very different. I miss, um, you know, year-round sunshine, and I miss the farmer's markets in L.A. a lot. But, you know, we don't get winter either, so. Yeah. Well, we didn't have winter here this year either, so. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and, and did, so. Yeah. I guess maybe, Dan, you could start. Uh, with this one, uh, and Caitlin, feel free to jump in. But I, I'd like to know the genesis on two levels, right? Because I think it's interesting. How did how did you uh, find yourself doing a project in Hudson Yards? First of all, like how does that happen? Were you approached? Did you approach them? Did an intermediary approach one or the other? Uh, and then the meaning of the name and and the just the overall concept uh, and how you would distinguish it from, you know, your other projects. The genesis of it is um, I got very lucky. I try and remain uh, friendly with a lot of different people. And um, basically a friend of mine who we worked together back in the Danny Meyer days. So I don't know, late 90s. Um, we talked forever about doing something together and he was now running um, F&B development for Related. Um, he came to me and said, we have an opportunity. And quite honestly, um, it was, you know, during COVID, it was, a, it was still a bad time. And we were struggling with Penny Bridge in Long Island City. And in a weird way, it was, you know, one door closes, another door opens kind of scenario in that we knew Penny Bridge would really be a struggle. Uh, it was a, a COVID birth and essentially a COVID death at the same time. And in this in this weird way, the same sort of thing happened in that um, the original operator of this project um, basically bailed out because of COVID. And so uh, my friend reached out to me and, um, you know, first my inclination was, I think it's too much. I can barely keep what I have going. And COVID's, you know, all that's on my mind. And then the more we talked about it, the more I got really excited by all these different opportunities within this one project. And it's a little bit, um, a little bit challenging and a little bit uh, sort of nerve wracking in terms of how much we have. Uh, again, we do F&B for the building. We have an honor bar. We have the bakery. We have the chef's counter. We have a cocktail lounge. We have a restaurant, all of which are, you know, as Caitlin said, kind of, we want to be at the top of our game for each one of these things. And I think in a lot of respects, that was what drew me to this was the challenge of doing things that I hadn't done before. Um, opening another restaurant is, I don't want to say easy by any means, but that part I knew. Um, opening a bakery, opening, you know, doing an honor bar, um, doing a cocktail lounge, all those were sort of new challenges. And, and that's really what drew me to the project in, in the first place. And then um, I got really, really fortunate that um, the team that I was working with 
um, the related team that I was working with are, are absolutely incredible and have been pleasures to work with. And so they really made this transition from a restaurant, Penny Bridge, that was you know, essentially not doing well and then closed, which Caitlin was the chef of. Um, going from that into a new project, they made that whole transition really kind of smooth and and for lack of a better word, friendly uh, and supportive. And and so, again, this isn't without its challenges. And um, we're still, I think, you know, suffering from, from COVID in different ways. And we'll see the effects of it for a while. Um, and so, you know, again, great group of people to kind of help me get started on this next phase. Caitlin, is there anything you would add to that or did Dan do okay? Oh, you did great. <laughs> okay. You were a sous chef at Loring Place, is that right, Caitlin, before Penny Bridge and now Grey Wind? Yep. I started actually as a grill cook at Loring Place five years ago and yeah, fell in love with that place. Uh, again, maybe you guys want to answer this in tandem. I'll, I'll start with you, Caitlin. You're coming into this project as the executive chef. You know, that's a whole different thing, obviously, than even chef to cuisine. Uh, that implies uh, leadership, that implies accountability, that implies management, uh, you know, kind of the whole enchilada, right? Uh, what What's that uh, like for you coming into that role with such a complex project, right, with all these different facets? And then the other thing I'm always curious to know, I mean, you're the executive chef, you're not the chef de cuisine, but here's this chef, Dan Kluger, right, who's who's right there. If there is on a project like this, you know, a give and take or a symbiotic kind of thing going on, how, do, how does that work? But let's start first just with the, the scope of your job and how you even prepare for, you know, that that quantum leap. Um, yes. Uh, how, how to prepare. You can't really. Um, it's really just taking one thing at a time and and seeing the bigger picture. I think that's what the role comes down to is seeing that larger picture where chef de cuisine or and all of the sous chefs they're they're focused on day to day operations, um, physically what's happening in the kitchen in every moment. Um, the difference between my job and theirs would be like seeing the overarching goals um, and making sure that that team is set up to achieve those goals within all the the day to day operations. The only reason that I can do my job is because I've been working with Chef Dan for a while. And, um, you know, at this point, I'm pretty confident in what I know he wants and what he would like to see. And we're headed in the same direction. So you feel like you've absorbed the the sensibility of the organization. You've absorbed kind of the lane that you're driving in and then you can maneuver within that. Yes, exactly. And also, you know, he's been very trusting of me and has given me the the freedom to try things and, and, you know, in, in some cases not do so well, but learn lessons and, and stay within the range that we're working towards and always be there as a guiding force. Um, but he's definitely trusting of what we want to accomplish um, on the ground. And, and in turn, the, I think the hardest part so far of this, this whole project for me is doing the same with, with, the rest of the sous chefs and with our chef de cuisine of seeing that people are very different. They have different backgrounds. Everyone has something to offer, but, you know, grooming them in the way we want to see them grow um, with fault that falls within the brand and our larger goals as a company. I think it's kind of important to note that again, COVID had so many negative effects, but 
because of COVID um, and because of how sort of uh, light the business was at Penny Bridge, Caitlin was, you know, the chef de cuisine, but she was essentially helping run the whole thing from front house to back house to facility to everything. So it kind of opened her up for this next position in a way that um, if, you know, if she had just been a busy CDC, she may not have gotten the, the same opportunities. You know, she was, she was dealing with everything from um, a power outage to, to something in the facility breaking that, you know, maybe that may have not been the case if we didn't have COVID, but because of COVID, it was just, there's only so much attention that, we could give this one restaurant and only so much we could spend on it from a management perspective. So I think that also, you know, allowed her to step up and, and start to flex those muscles. And so that coming into this, it was um, not by any means a, an easy feat, but the, the target was a little bit easier to see. Again, for either of you, if nobody jumps in, I'll call on one of you. <laughs> uh, I'll do any, meeny my mo, but um, uh, you know, I, saw, I guess it was sometime in the late fall, uh, Alex Stupak, who's opening a restaurant soon, had on his, uh, you know, Instagram that the his opening got pushed back due to supply chain issues. Um, and I think a lot of people think of supply chain issues as like a thing of the past, as something that, you know, like, like, I mean, New York is starting to feel very normal right now. My understanding is these things are still lingering very much. I'm just wondering how either that or anything kind of someone who hasn't opened a restaurant ever or in the last year or so might not even think of. How, how have the lingering effects of this time we all came through just on a practical level? How has how that affected, if at all, you know, your physical approach or time approach to opening the doors? I mean, I think there, there's a few different aspects of it. I mean, in terms of um, supply chain, um, luckily that hasn't really affected us food-wise. Um, and again, I think, you know, we're not in general, we're not, um, uh, for lack of a better term, we're not like big commodity buyers. Like we're, we're all, always looking for smaller things anyway. Um, but in terms of just construction, um, there were a ton of supply chain issues, which I'm sure is what um, Stupac uh, dealt with as well. But like, I, I mean, we we got our last ice machine, I think, a week ago. And it's like the last ice machine in the country right now kind of scenario. Like we just couldn't get things that that we should have gotten. And I know earlier on, um, you know, we were dealing with like, I, I don't remember, like some some little construction thing that it was like they couldn't they couldn't get this one thing which was the next step to the build out but they couldn't get it because it was supply chain issue so um i think you know we're gonna see that kind of stuff for a while um i think uh you know in terms of the food we're not seeing a lot of that i think what what we're starting to see or what we're still seeing is the the other effects that i think COVID has had and that's um you know again staffing uh i truly believe, um, you know, we have a, a smaller talent pool today because of COVID. There's, there's um, less culinary students, there's less people looking for jobs. So I think that has definitely been a struggle and um, we know it, we kind of went into this knowing that. Uh, we haven't changed anything in terms of opening dates or what we're doing because of it. We need to kind of plow ahead and, you know, we'll see how that affects us. If, if it means that, um, we need to make the menu smaller or the, the favorite dish on the menu needs to come off right now because we just can't find that cook or because that skill level is not there, then we'll deal with that when the time comes. But right now, 
Um, you know, staffing is just a, a general struggle. And then I think, um, and certainly I'm seeing it more in Loring Place. I mean, we're not open yet, so I don't know what the effects will be. But um, I think that you know the work from home and, and and some of these other things I think truly are affecting business. Um, it seems like people don't come out to eat now until six forty-five, and by nine o'clock they're done. Um, a lot of our regular clientele has moved away or has just changed their pattern. Um, so I don't see the same people that I saw uh, pre-COVID by any means. So I think all those things are, are just factors that we will be dealing with for a while. And again, doing a new project at a time like this is nerve wracking, but it's, it's kind of that fun challenge of how do you get through this? Uh, we, we saw the worst of it, right? You and I certainly have talked about this numerous times. We saw the worst of it. We've more or less gotten through the worst of it. Now we have a whole bunch of new speed bumps that we have to get through, and, and that's a fun challenge. Caitlin, anything you would add to that? We also had some fun supply chain issues in chickens that everyone knows about chickens. So, you know, just random things happening that something skyrockets or even the chemical oil spill, which some people don't really connect, um, actually had a huge impact on this, the surrounding states. So like we're, we've heard from even ramp um, foragers that they're not going to go picking this year. And and then you have, you know, the weather, you throw the weather into it, right? California, our farmers out there have complained about a lot of their crops being lost because of the weather. And so again, I think the supply chain is, is maybe a little less COVID related today in terms of food, it's a little bit more um, just where we are in the world. And um, I, I think, I guess the, the COVID effect is still that the cost, the inflation, the cost is still super high. Um, and again, it's sort of like uh, you, you eat out a lot, I know, and I'm, I'm sure you pay attention to the prices. And I'm sure at some point you're going to say, you know, how much do I really want to spend on a chicken or on a steak and you want to go out, you want to support, you want to have a nice dinner. But at some point it's kind of crazy. And I listen to people talking about prices at restaurants. I'm like, you really have no idea. Like I know when you go to the supermarket, you buy your pork chop and you think it only costs you X amount. You have no idea of how much more expensive it is today to operate a business, especially in a place like New York, than it was a year and a half, two years ago. Well, and also, I mean, not I'm not just blowing smoke, but somebody who operate. I mean, a lot of people at the level of the of your restaurants and, uh, you know, comparable places who are buying from you know family farms who are buying, uh, you know, the whole range of product, right? Everything from uh, fruits and vegetables to to proteins to you know microgreen, whatever it is. That stuff is raised in a responsible way by a by a small farm. I mean, you got you all are paying a lot of money for that stuff, uh, and and the rate of inflation, as a number of chefs have pointed out to me in the last few years, uh, the rate of price increase in restaurants overall has not tracked the rate of inflation, right? And is this accurate to me? Where it's created this like kind of this perfect storm of something's got to give. I mean, at some point, the industry has to bring its pricing in line with how the cost of goods and services have gone up, right? But because that's been delayed or, or minimized for so long, I think there's going to be an inevitable, at some point, just a period of sticker shock. At some point, something has to give. I think it needs to. I don't, I don't know 
when and how it will, but I think it needs to. And I think that, you know, um, if, if we raised prices, we went, you know, from 16 to $17, but the beets or the broccoli or whatever it is that we bought, you know, it, it went up by more than whatever that percentage is. And there's just only so much that I think people are willing to, to pay for specific things. Cause in their mind, a salad or a pizza or a fish entree, whatever, it shouldn't cost more than, you know, whatever that number is. And it's, it's very hard, but what, what's really infuriating is like, then, you know, and, and we go down a rabbit hole with this, but you need a new iPhone. You have no problem spending a thousand dollars on the iPhone. But if I were to tell you that the difference between a burger that's $23 and a burger that's $29 is it's all organic, it's hand ground, it's locally grown, it's local to all these things, right? Like it's better for you. And that's before you get to the garnish on it. But you don't care. You right. don't, or the home or the house made roll, right? Exactly. You, know? you yeah. just you just see that difference in price. And and I've had this argument with people that, you know, certainly are price sensitive about food, but not price sensitive about their handbag or their iPhone. And and that's, you know, as an operator trying to put out a good product, that's really, really a frustrating thing. We, you know, not to not to use Lauren Place example, but during COVID, we you know, cut wherever we could. We made all sorts of changes. We didn't have the staff. I mean, there was like five of us in the kitchen when there would have been 20, right? And we, we changed our French fries to a, a frozen French fry. We had a non-GMO, uh, like great product. But the whole time we kept saying, this isn't us. This doesn't feel right. And as soon as we could get back to it, we went back to making our own. And it's a night and day difference and it feels better. But the sheer cost of that, doesn't make any sense because there's only so much that I can charge for that French fry, right? So this is our, our struggle today. And I think, as you said, there, there needs to be change at some point. I just don't know. I don't know when and how because, uh, again, there's too many people that will um, not recognize that a salad actually should cost $20 and not 16 Okay, let's end on a happy note. Whether it's happening on site there or in the prep kitchen at Loring Place, uh, I'm assuming if you're opening in April, you're doing uh, dish development and, and, and recipe testing and whatnot. And, and I'm assuming this is across all three you know, channels. I'm assuming there's things being baked for the bakery and tried out. I'm assuming there's cocktails uh, uh, for, the, for the cocktail bar. Uh, Caitlin, can you... Um, just, I mean, whether it's a specific dish or a specific area that you're particularly excited by, what are what are some things that you're particularly um, excited by that have kind of uh, already started to coalesce uh, a few weeks out? I think I'm honestly most excited about the bakery um, because, A, I personally love bakeries. I, I, in my spare time, I like visiting bakeries. It's something that just brings me joy. Um, and also our pastry chef is phenomenal. So it's been a, a very rewarding collaborative experience. I think the three of us play off of each other very, very well. Um, so that's been, you know, an added bonus to the whole process. Like you always hope you're going to collaborate well, but the, the extent to which we've been able to flesh out these ideas and really it feels so organic has been very rewarding. One of the things I'm most excited uh, to see come to fruition is this idea that we had of, of kind of like a Chinese bao bun, but done with American breakfast food. 
So we took Jake's amazing, our, our pastry chef's name is Jake, his amazing milk bread roll um, and stuffed it with scrambled eggs and bacon jam and made it like, to me, it reminds me of a curry pan, which is a Japanese savory breakfast pastry. Um, but it's fried and crispy and there's the Japanese curry inside. So I've always wanted to do something that was a little bit more American in that format. Um, and so one day I messaged Jake and I was like, do you think we can do this? And he, we, we talked about it for days and we're like, okay, we could try this, this, and this. And, and on the first try he did it and like nailed the format. It was, it was a success, which rarely happens for anyone that's testing dishes. Usually you have this insane idea and then you try 20 different tests and eventually you get to where you need to be. And on that first one, it was like a real thing came to be and we were so happy with it. And it's just been tweaking ever since. But so that was extremely exciting to, to go through. I think we, when we set out to do the menu, I think it's a mix of like something that has a nostalgic feeling for one of us. I know there's some reason for it, or it's literally like just, you know, walking through the market or thinking about food and we come up with something, but the, the fun is really like coming up with something that has a nostalgic meaning to one of us and pushing that through and, and seeing it actually come to fruition because it's then tied to something for us. Like the, the bow is like, you know, I can think about walking down the street in Chinatown with a bow in my hand. And now I'm thinking about, this is like a breakfast sandwich. This is a breakfast sandwich on crack. Like, you know, this to me is amazing. And, and it's not something that you're seeing probably anywhere else right now. And, and that's exciting. And so I think the, the whole process of, of doing all the recipe testing, which, you know, started months and months and months ago and has gone through multiple iterations because we were going to open in September and then November and then January. And so, you know, the, the amazing like squash dish we had is now changed to a spring pea dish. Like seeing all of that, I think, is, is also a lot of fun for us. And that's our show for today. Again, my great thanks to Dan Kluger and Caitlin Giamarillo for joining us. I wish you and your teams all the best with the opening of Grey Wind. And if you are in New York City or find yourself visiting New York City, I do recommend the restaurant. I, like I said, I had a tremendous meal there and I love the room. I can't tell you how much I love the room. It really just feels cozy and lush and I, lo I love being there and I can't wait to go back. Andrew Talks to Chefs is produced by Table 12 Productions. The show is written, booked, edited, mixed, and hosted by me, Andrew Friedman. If you would like to support us, we ask that you do that by telling a friend about the pod, posting about it on social media, and or rating or reviewing us at Apple Podcasts, which does help people find the show. I would also really appreciate it if you pre-ordered my new book, The Dish, the link for that is on the episode page for today's show and on all of our recent episode pages. And it would be meaningful to me if you pre-ordered the book and help it get off to a good launch when it debuts this fall. Our thanks also to After School Special for our music. Please check out their album, Double Barrel, single Entendre on iTunes. Please follow us on Instagram. The handle there is at Chef Podcast. And thank you for listening. We will be back soon with another episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs.